you're listening to uh, the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast. Uh, you're joined by your usual hosts, Josh Hartley and Ben Porter. Ben, how are we doing? Doing good, yeah. Doing good. And we're joined by our guests this week. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Hi. So we're joined by Ralph. Uh, Ralph is... Um, Ralph Horsley. Oh, Horsley, I beg your pardon. And um, Ralph, uh, rather than being another games developer, uh, trying to promote their Kickstarter, Ralph, uh, tell us a bit about what you do. Well, I I work as a freelance illustrator. I work primarily for print games companies. And I've worked for about 30 years now doing artwork for different types of games, board games, card games, uh, a lot of role-playing games. I've worked on Dungeons & Dragons, Magic the Gathering, uh, Pathfinder, I've done World of Warcraft stuff, I've worked for Games Workshop. So I've worked with all the major publishers over the last couple of two or three decades, yes. That is some uh, Catholic, because I was actually going to say, if you, if you don't, if our listeners don't recognise your name, they'll have almost certainly seen some of your, uh, some of your work in uh, our favourite games. Uh, <laughs> for me, Magic the Gathering was probably the one that I recognised, because I think most recently you're famous for uh, the contraptions in the Unstable uh, block, is that right? I was fortunate enough to be asked to go out to uh, Seattle about three years ago to do the concept art for Unstable. And at that stage, I think it had been about two years in development. It was interesting to find out, have something like a five-year lead time from the initial sort of design inception through to the product hitting the shelves. Mm. So that pretty impressive so i was there three years ago when they were oh. still even then not 100 percent sure they were going to go ahead with the product it was all very hush hush revisiting the unsets and and so you know there's a team of three of us mm-hmm. uh, myself chuck lukacs and jesper rising and between us we basically define that star define the star guide uh working there sort of three years ago and then about a year ago was when the actual commission to do the contraption came about and that was great because that was nine paintings that had to all fit together to make one image it's so, really yeah. impressive actually just <laughs> yeah. seeing the yeah. uh, seeing the work complete and in the flesh as well rather than on the individual cards so that was cool we we caught up with uh, ralph at aircon and yep. uh, had a look at some of your more recent work as well um do, do you know what was funny just when you were saying about um people will maybe not recognise Ralph's name, but they'll recognise his work. See, after I got home from Aircon, I went on to your, your website, Ralph. Yes. And I, um, I should give, I should give my website address out if you like, do my bit of self-promotion. So. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, go for it. We'll, we'll have it in the notes as well, but if you well, want to... So it's it's uk, and that's just a hub, and it'll direct you off to other places and things where I do stuff. There Fantastic. Um but yeah, I I came I, I got home from Aircon, was looking through your website, and lo and behold, uh, one of the the cover image for one of my favourite games is in your gallery. Oh Lords yes, of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to do. That actually, at the time, I was doing a lot of cover art for Dungeons and Dragons and, and they asked me to do Laws of Waterdeep which was great actually, I didn't realise really at the time what a, what a good game it was going to be and also it was their first step into doing Euro style games so they were quite nervous about it you know, it was quite, so it was quite I realised afterwards really, it was quite a, a nice 
sort of high profile project for them to give me you know it showed that they had a trust in what i was going to produce for them uh so yeah it's good good to see it's been successful for them as well yeah yeah i mean that's a massive game as well and you were showing off um some of uh, and forgive me if you can't talk about this but the uh <laughs> the artwork that you've been commissioned for the new Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game as well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had it on my display panel there if, if it wasn't for the fact I, I thought, could share I thought that would have been the case. <laughs> I thought that would have been the case, but you never know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that has been shared. I believe that's already been shared online, that image, um, by Cubicle 7. Yeah, Cubicle 7 have got the license to produce Warhammer Fantasy role-play. Um, and I was very nice to be invited back onto the, the, the line because I did... I think it was the, I think I forget, I forget which edition it was now, second or third edition, but I did a lot of artwork for that when it was um, with Hogshead Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it went to Fantasy Flight Games and they used Darken to do a lot of their, their cover artwork. So it's nice, it sort of cycled back around and I'm revisiting it. Yeah, it, I sort of cut my teeth in a lot of ways on doing Warhammer well, Fantasy Roleplay uh, sort of earlier on in my career. So it's nice to go back and revisit it. It's a great world to work on. Yeah, and uh, also other games then that you've been featured in recently, Hearthstone, the absolutely massive online game from Blizzard. Never, never heard of it. Never, never heard, heard of it? it. No. <laughs> Where have you been? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, they realised, which is quite interesting, you know, around the time, because I did a lot of work for the TCG, mm. and I, I think there was a few companies around the time that, that they sort of, the market may have become a bit oversaturated with TCGs, and they are quite heavy on the pocket if you're a keen player, I think. You know, they oh, yeah. sort of level of commitment there. And I think they were sort of finding sort of sales were sort of tailing off on the TCG. So it was a really good move for them, really, to, to appreciate the sort of growth of online gaming and how they tapped into that. It was a similar sort of dynamic happened with Dungeons & Dragons that they, they were finding they were making... I was told at one point by a, an art director to Wizards of the Coast that... The online Dungeon Dragons game made more money for the company in one day than all their printed books did over a year. It's impressive and at the same time slightly depressing yeah. because I love the um, I love the printed medium and you know like one of the reasons why we all love uh, tabletop games on this podcast is yeah. the sort of tactile the physicality of it, uh, which you don't get when you're playing these games online. No, no. No, and interestingly, see, there was like an internal argument went on between the different sort of, you know, factions within Wizards of the Coast of what direction Dungeons & Dragons should take. And interestingly, fourth edition was the sort of reflected which sort of faction won out on that. And that's why they stopped. The focus became quite different. And they were the tabletop version, in a sense, was sort of undervalued. It was felt by certainly some parties involved in that. And it was interesting that because they, they then sort of stopped producing a lot of get, uh, books themselves. They farmed a lot of things out. They licensed things out. There was sort of a different dynamic within the company. And at that time, there was just like, like no freelance work working on Dungeons & Dragons at all. It just it all just completely dried up pretty much overnight uh, for the changes. So it's interesting that their models sort of reversed back. I think because the argument was that the role-playing game was the one with the sort of loyal followers and the innovators, and that was the where all the world-building came from. And having all this art produced for these print volumes that are coming out every month was really building up the sort of um, archives, really, the whole world setting mm-hmm. of of Dungeons and Dragons in a way that other aspects of sort of being licensed that weren't, they were sort of really derivatives of it. And I think they've come back to realise what value that added to, to the product, really. Of course, it's bloody massive now, D&D, isn't it? Yeah, yes. But, you know, for a while there, certainly as far as, like, the 
tabletop role-playing games where Pathfinder sort of stole a march on them. There was some interesting sort of dynamics, dynamics have gone on. It's interesting to see how companies are trying to adjust to you know, more of a digital marketplace and, and how this impacts on traditional role-playing games. And, of course, one, one thing that was noted as well is that, you know, your tabletop role-playing games are generally an ageing demographic. And That's how, true, yeah. How can, well, whereas, like, back in the 80s when they were first experiencing their first boom, it was very young people playing it, probably, like, school kids. Um, I think it's probably the still type... Still, the the same people actually well, playing yeah, the game. That's it. it's, it's a lot of people, I think, revisiting their their childhood, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think I think the yeah. average age, just off a gut feeling, the average age of an RPG play, a tabletop RPG player now is probably late twenties, early thirties, compared to teens when it was not, uh, when it was experiencing old, its first actually, boom. Yeah, sorry, sorry to talk over you. Yeah, if not older for some things, actually, I think you know there could be even sort of into. 30s and 40s or a lot of the tabletop role players um but you know i think it is one of those things that it, it, it is a good hobby it's a good game mm. and i think the next generation will come will come through but it, you know maybe it has to be just part of a bit of an organic process the trouble is of course companies are always looking to increase sales and increase profit and there's and once you've got that drive there that commercial drive which you know they, they have to that's that's the nature of what they are isn't it yeah then, then the, the pressure can be on to attract uh, you know, to, well, they want to attract more players, but how, it's how they go about doing that and how they perceive that the market being. It, yeah. it was, a similar sort of thing happened to Games Workshop, really, where they were desperately, they realised that their business model was um, for a while, but they had, if they only had players for about four or five years, you know, during their teenage years, that was where the majority of their, their customers basically came from, would play the game for four or five years, and they worked out they would spend X amount, they'd buy a couple of armies or whatever else, and they'd spend so many, you know, hundreds of pounds, whatever, over the course of, of their involvement in the hobby. And then most people would, would leave. But the truth was, when they then started to focus purely on that, they alienated actually the the longer-term players, the sort of 10% or whatever of players that's carried on through into their 20s and 30s. And, of course, a lot of those people were the, actually the people that had more disposable income. Yep. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, they were maybe sort of, you know, younger sort of professionals or whatever else who didn't have families and children or whatever, but were still actively engaged in the hobby and were spending probably more money than these teenage boys dependent on handouts from their parents. You know, but that, they're, but it's, they're it's a fair comment. Sort of, yeah. No, you know, that's, uh, that's sort of I mean, read their own research in some ways and then had to sort of remodel it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, w one of the things I, I did want to ask, Ralph, because uh, normally when we ask, like, uh, game games creators. Okay, how how do you get into what you're doing? Most of them just respond, "Oh, just go out and do it." But how how on earth do you become uh, a fantasy illustrator? I, I have no idea what the career path is for that. Well, I can only tell you really what my own career path is. I mean, I I I, had, I was a gamer myself. I grew up playing role playing games and mm -hmm. you know, reading Lord of the Rings and whatever else. And and I was always just a keen. Drawing, sketching, whatever. Well, that was, that was what I did really as a hobby. Mm -hmm. I was act I became actively involved in in what at the time was the fanzine market. It was print, you know, sort of pre-internet days, sort of print fanzines, and basically just and I became involved in contributing on an amateur level. Then I realised actually it was something I loved doing was being involved in making the art and being involved in the games in games, and 
it, it was just a case of just keep doing it was a case of really just keep doing it and i just built up that network of people these days actually i think it's probably a lot easier because there's a lot more accessibility you can go online you can find groups for the artists that are doing the same thing you can communicate with the artists things like that yeah, you can find information out about the publishers and who the art directors and things like that um, and submissions process. You know, there's actually a very good, thriving art community out there and, and it's accessible. And the thing, one thing I've found, which I think is, very, is a very nice aspect about the sort of the industry is that the artists, despite in some ways being, you could argue, in competition with each other, it's not like that. People are very supportive and friendly and, you know, it's it's a nice working community to be part of it's um, always struck me that about um the tabletop community as well there's not much in the way of egos there and everyone just gets along which is really nice yeah yes i think maybe as you say because it is in some ways a hobby industry people you know are passionate about about it and want want to see success you know that we all want people to do well don't we yeah you know, the best for people um, so maybe sorry. So maybe that's not a very helpful answer about saying. <laughs> no, no, it, 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 it no. was. That's how you got into it, and then, yeah, you know. I, I, I don't think there's any one answer. I think you know, in some ways, doing is it. But I suppose it's. I suppose what you can say is, there are of course common sense things you can do. You know, if you want to improve your craft, then obviously you need to be methodical about it and think what, how you're trying to improve and what you're trying to do. And at the same time, if there's certain companies you want to work for, then you need to be producing artwork, which they can look at and, and it looks comparable to what they're putting in their, their publications, how they're, you know, so it's to sort of say, I'm a good fit. What you're trying yeah. to say to an art director, because of course an art director has got a lot of responsibility there. They know that the art will help sell the product and they've got to, make it you know make everything work together now it's a lot easier for them to go and work with an artist they've worked with before who they know knows the product knows the style whatever else will produce on time will be easy to work with all those things they don't have to take any risks but if you if it's the first time you're working for the art director they're taking a big risk on you they're, they're taking the risk that you will produce what you've indicated in your portfolio that you you can produce mm -hmm. and that you'll understand the brief and you won't let them down you know that their product will look better for your involvement at the end um so yeah it, it's not it's not necessarily the easiest thing to get into in that sense but there is lots of opportunities one thing within within the hobby is that there's a a really big scale from the people that at one end are maybe just you know doing it on the side it's a very much an amateur uh hobby type a hobby thing for them it's not it's not a big business decision they just want to produce a game that they've made that they love mm -hmm. and they want you know, they want people to come and be involved, help them out and do artwork. That's what you can say that's the amateur level through to companies like Wizards of the Coast. So actually, a lot of times start, you know, you will be starting at the bottom level and get cutting your teeth and getting the experience of doing those sort of products. But there are, in that sense, a lot of inroads. It's not like you're just going to big publishers. There's yeah. a spectrum to work with. No, that's, no it's, that's, I mean, that's very interesting. And like, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Every, every uh, creator in the uh, tabletop industry, right from the big guys like Watsy and uh, GW, right down to the uh, indie guys who are launching their Kickstarters, they all have one thing in common, and that they need art. They need yeah. something to promote the game, uh, which is obviously why uh, you and uh, other artists are so key to the industry as well. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think art's very important. I mean, it... it, it, it 
and people do judge a book by its cover, you know. Yeah. It tells, <laughs> you know, it, it does tell you something about the setting or the world or what the game's like. It, you know, it does provide a lot. It can provide a lot of information and, mm-hmm. and just be attractive and alluring and whatever else you know, that, that, that you're trying to to do with that. And I'm sure, you know, we can all have favourite games that we love it because it's a great game regardless of what the cover artwork's like. But but if you but you you know when something is, I mean. Maybe going back to like what you said about the water. But I mean, I'm nice to have association with that, and hopefully people look at that and think that's a good cover and it says something about the game and, you know, all these things work together. Um, trying to get that harmony there, aren't you? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry I rambled a bit then, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ramble away. Yeah. Ramble away. It's it's more than welcome. <laughs> just, yeah. just so no, well, I suppose, that. you know, I, I, I feel that art has got a really big role to play. I don't think it's necessarily undervalued, but I don't think necessarily people appreciate how much, how many different functions it can have within a game, especially within a role-playing, a sort of tabletop role-playing game. You know, you're telling people what the world's like in... in, in in a lot of different ways, you know, that whole world building aspect of it is, I think, is really interesting. It's one of these things I think you definitely notice when it's not there. Yeah. See these really dry historical war games? Yeah. Which um, I'm sure are great fun to play, but when you're mm. looking at the front cover and you're reading the manual and it feels like you need to be a member of Mensa to understand half of what's going on. Or even to use a more current example, you look at Terraforming Mars, it, it looks like something out of a maths textbook. Yeah, and that, that might be appealing to some people, Yeah, but not frankly to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a good game, actually. I have enjoyed playing it recently, but it's it, the, the board art's quite nice, but the cover is a bit... It's it doesn't it's not the, it's not the most punchy cover, is it really? You know, the the thing that really annoyed me about it was um, the art on the cards. It was quite inconsistent, I thought, for for a start. But a a lot of it just felt like stock photos as well. Yeah. It's like it. I don't well, know. It could have. It, the other thing I felt as well, you see, with with it, with it, and this is this is where sort of art and design comes in because hopefully. I found it quite hard to because there's different groups of cards within mm. within forming out. There's different types of some which stay in play and some which go like one use. And I think they have got a sort of common border. Like someone would be blue bordered or I can't remember it now actually. Um, but it was one where I felt the art didn't always tie in with those things. So you know that's that's the thing that I think if a game design can work well, let's say all cards are sort of blue themed, so they. F- they share a similar palette and maybe the composition is similar and it helps all these visual cues help you play the game it's like if you look at a board and sometimes you go oh, it looks a really really nice board lots of colors but i can't work out where all the regions are because maybe it doesn't read as clearly as it could you know there's a lot of there's a lot of um i think when something works well you don't notice it <laughs> yes <laughs> you know? And, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, no, do you know, no. Wizards of the Coasts with Magic the, Gather- the Gathering have become the masters of that as well. Though that's a, the sort of cross section where the artist meets the graphic designer, because I, you could take the vast majority of the artwork that they use for their cards, remove the card frame, remove the rules text, and you could at the probably at the very least tell what color of magic that artwork belongs to, whether it's black, red, white, blue, or green. Mm. Uh, and you might have an idea about what the spell does as well. Yep. Uh, and they've become very good at sort of uh, unifying the, the artistic direction, the colour composition, uh, and uh, 
just the the feel of what well, that's it's, supposed it's to do in to, game. Um, a lot of the the design cues that they talk about with the Games Workshop models. Mm. Like one of the things that I thought was quite interesting, and you, it's only when it's mentioned to you that you really notice it, is that um, the the dark elves mm-hmm. are very often asymmetrical. Ah, and, and that's to represent their spiritual imbalance. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. That's interesting. There we go. Yeah. There we go. So it's <laughs> all these subtle little things help build a world, and yeah. uh, you know that. That's why artists. It's, are so it's one key. of these things that when it's mentioned to you, suddenly go, yeah. "Oh yeah, oh, yeah, they are." Yeah. <laughs> well, it's those things like if they work well, they work nicely. So you know, I mean, I suppose on a simple like. Uh, quite maybe this may be a bit of a cliche trope but you'll find like certainly like within sort of D world dwarves and things tend to have very you know regular uh sort of square shaped or rectangular shaped or blocky sort of shape mm. type armor and of course elves will have flowing line all, all that sort of stuff so you have those nice contrasts but again like you think something else i thought of when you were talking then about the clear different sort of world building assets so like um something you're probably familiar with like game of thrones where your people that are in diff- the different areas of the country wear very different style clothing or have different strap types of strappings or buckles or mm. you know or different helmet shapes yeah. and all these sort of things work together then to tell you what the world is like in the same the same with sort of role playing game art it helps inform those different different things yeah. uh, and you're absolutely right you notice it when it's not quite when it's not when right. it's not working, yeah. <laughs> but when well, it's all working together, yeah. it's oh, well, just a bit, bit bland or hasn't really pushed that. You know, that's that's the other thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because the, the thing is, like um, you, you just mentioned, uh, dwarfs there, Ralph. If, if they didn't have that blocky armor, a lot of them would just like look like little fat humans. Yeah, probably. Yeah, well, there's different. You know, it's interesting to see how proportions and things change because, of course, over different editions and and things, people decide to sort of push things in different directions. So, you know, do the, I think for a while that certainly the Dungeons and Dragons dwarves had very long arms. Their arms were almost down to their sort of calves. Mm. You know, they were very. <laughs> you know, or they have a lot bigger heads. So the ratio of how many heads fit into the, the height of the figure, rather than being, you know, what it would suddenly sort of shrink down. So they've makes them look shorter because they've got big heads and, and all these different things. I mean, I like the sort of evolution of different goblins, how each different uh, company or, or whatever will decide what a goblin looks like. <laughs> you know? I, I like Wizards of the Coast's approach to that. Oh, sorry, Ralph. It's okay. Sorry, what were you saying? I was just saying I like Wizards of the Coast's approach to the goblin because depending on what plane of magic they're set, they look completely different. And my favourite ones yeah. are the ones from um, uh, Tarkia, because Tarkia is like a sort of East Asian themed mm. world. And right. rather mm. than being these green skinned little long nosed creatures in like ancient Chinese and Japanese mythology, uh, goblins were little hairy creatures, almost like monkeys. Uh, so oh, I, I thought that was quite cool how, again, it, it tells you m- about that world, yeah. just how they represent all these different fictitious races in it. Yes, but it's also interesting that regardless of the fact they're hairy, you recognise them as goblins, isn't it? So what's yes. Certainly within like fantasy games, I suppose we've built up these these sort of um, ideas of what something should be like, and then but because that's there, you can then tweak it. That's the thing that's interesting, isn't it? You know, as you say, you, everyone's always got a, probably a fairly clear idea of what they think a dwarf should look like, but then because of that, you can play with it, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, same with the goblins, you can you can push things in different directions. <laughs> Well, it's like because um, D and D, you've got the gold dwarfs, 
Yes. Uh, and they, they, they've got an almost um, Arabian flavour to them. Yeah. They're quite dark-skinned. and I, I, I've really liked what they did with this last edition in terms of pushing pushing things in different directions, actually. You know, uh, I, I, I think that the sort of approach to the different cultures and different sort of ethnicities of the different races and things, I think they've, you know, they've been, that's one thing I would say about Wizards, which I think is, has been very good, really. They've been quite, I think they've been quite a leading force in that, in, in sort of making it a diverse cast of characters and Magic the Gathering, especially, you know, it's like we're going to have people of all different skin colours, different ethnicities and, and lots of women and, you know, and, and, and make it a sort of a properly populated and varied world, which, which it, I think it's been great. Yeah, and that that's an important thing as well because you want your you want the characters in your game to be as diverse as the people playing it as well, and uh, you know tabletops starting to attract all sorts of different people that aren't white middle class men. So yeah, absolutely, and and good for, good for that really, you know, and you know, and that's and that is a responsibility the art's got to take, you know, how you if you decide to keep putting women in chainmail bikinis and looking, you know, sort of. I don't know, <laughs> Hanging on to the ankles of hulking barbarians, and then you, you, you know, you are saying something, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you say something about your game, and you're saying something about your worldview, and and and, uh, and yeah, it's good that it's not like that anymore. Yeah, but just to say, if you are a woman and you do choose to do that, that's okay, as long as you choose. <laughs> As long as it's a choice. That, I always thought the bikini chainmail armor was very impractical. I, I think so. <laughs> It wasn't flattering on my figure, that's for sure. <laughs> no. No, um, Ra- Ralph, yeah. you mentioned earlier that uh, you, you sort of started off in the sort of fanzine scene before the internet uh, really yeah. took off. Now, uh, what I was going to ask, have you, have you found that technology has changed the way that you approach your work and how you do it? Yeah, massively. I mean, I, for a start, I probably couldn't have worked with a lot of the clients I'm working now internationally because when I, well, you know, when I was first starting out, I mean, I, well, I'm 51 now, so that you can probably work out how long ago it was. Um, but it, it was a case of I would do a sketch, uh, and I would go and photocopy it and then mail it off or fax it maybe if you you know <laughs> really sort of really what's a fax machine yeah yes quite you know and you would mail it off to the client who then you know phone you up maybe or write back to you and say what they whether they approved it or wanted changes and this process would go back and forth so of course you tend to have longer deadlines things because you needed it just for the mm-hmm. exchange of mail and whatever else going on and maybe as well there was a certainly maybe changes were well i don't know there's maybe a different consideration about the process it's basically just a slower process and maybe you know now but of course it, it, it meant it's limiting you can't really do something like that and then work with people in seattle without you know it just adds an extra time lag on now it's fantastic i i most of my clients are america most of them probably based in seattle and you can sort of email someone and get a response back instantaneously and you can exchange images and things that way it's, it's you know it's fantastic <laughs> Just when you were saying about um, facts in there, I, yeah. I remember um, when I was 10, uh, I had to get my dad to fax the parental consent form from a Neopets account. <laughs> <laughs> That's, but, but, but Neopets was online. They didn't. He didn't need to fax Listen, it, surely. <laughs> it was the year 2000. We're still getting to grips with the internet. <laughs> so that, that yeah. was the way it was done. 
Yeah, well, things have moved a lot. I mean, uh, you know, and it, I mean, it's, it's having a continuous impact on 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 um, publications. The whole way things have moved online, especially like book novel book covers, things things have to read now as a thumbnail on a screen. You know, because yeah. that's where a lot of people are looking at looking at uh, games or book covers or whatever else. So it's a bit in the same way when I suppose you know vinyl albums were dropped off in favour of CDs or whatever. You saw, you have a sort of different type of cover, cover image because it's red, got to be red on a lot smaller area. And similar things going on now. The less people may be looking at a book or something in a bookshop, and the more likely to be looking at in a you know, it's a little thumbnail on a screen. Really, mm. probably on it's their mobile I've never phone. Considered you know? Um, yeah, and I, I suppose uh, when you're approached to uh, do art for a trading card, you've got to do that differently uh, to doing art for like the front cover of a book or a boxed game because you know you've only you've you've only got a really small sort of area where you've got yeah. to make that image look good as well. Well, yes, there's diff- obviously different challenges, different you know different products, whatever. I mean, that's part of the thing I suppose I particularly like about. Them. I feel fortunate about my job is that there's a lot of variety in there and you're also given a lot of you know freedom and responsibility to interpret star guys in interprets world settings uh, you know it, it is a sort of collaborative process but but within that you've got a lot of independence you know you are very much given a brief and just left to go and do it really yeah do do you have a favorite project that you've worked on ralph uh oh it'd be hard to say i suppose there's different highlights the years i guess it's when you do something really big or different or challenging so so yeah the contraption was really nice partly because i was involved in the whole process through pretty much from the you know the inception of the first art through to the finished product but also doing a, a piece which was as large as that i mean i actually did it as nine paintings each one was about a2 size or if not bigger actually oh, wow. i had to, I had to look, well i think you saw one of them with your aircon i had one of them that was one out of the nine so i had these all laid out on the floor to try and you know to, to pencil in the, the the overall sketch to get them all to fit together i mean finally they all sort of scanned in and digitally tweaked you know to fit the template and they make sure everything was was uh, working fine but that process of doing that and working out how you nine different focal points that are going to read within a strict template but add, add all these other aspects i mean that you know doing stuff like that is a big challenge or or um yeah yeah so i've had lots of I feel fortunate, really. I've had a lot of good career highlights, but I guess the things I like best is when you get the opportunity to do some, something quite big, something quite grand. Uh, and I like doing figures in and dramatic things, and and uh, so that I suppose that all feeds in. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, look, Ralph, I think that's all we've got time for just now, but uh, just thanks once again for coming on the show. Uh, could you just remind our listeners, if they want to see more of your work or, or perhaps even buy something... Uh, where where can they go? Yes, well, the hub for everything really is to go to www.ralphhorsley, that's R-A-L-P-H-H-O-R-S-L-E-Y.co.uk, and that will send you off to my web shop and Facebook and Instagram and various other. So, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been good to chat to you. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. So thanks very much. And, guys, thank you very much for listening as well. Uh, Stay tuned, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Okay, bye. Bye. We are Unlucky Frog Gaming, and I am Ben. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Unlucky Frog Gaming. You can also show your support by giving us money. 
through the Unlucky Frog Patreon. And be sure to check out our website, unluckyfrog.com, to find out more. Thank you.